Welcome to Talking Kotlin. On this episode, I'm sitting down with Pamela Hill discussing code kindness. Hi, Pamela. Welcome to the show. Hi, Hadi. Thank you. So we were just speaking uh, before the show that you're based in South Africa, right? Yes. So you work, uh, you work in South Africa or you work uh, remotely or how does that work? I work in South Africa at a, um, Luno, a cryptocurrency. Um, we have an app and we have a website and so on. So it's a cryptocurrency company. Oh, nice. So you actually work in something that you know what it's about as opposed to the rest of the world that just talks about something they have no idea about, right? <laughs> well, I, I pretend that I know what cryptocurrency is about and it seems to be working quite well. That's cool. And and does, does it involve blockchain as well? Yes. Okay. And, and does it involve Kotlin? So our app is a Java Kotlin hybrid, um, but our blockchain stuff is, um, our backends are written in Go and our website in Angular. So it's not, it's not, unfortunately the backends aren't Kotlin, but we are definitely thinking of going towards Kotlin and there has been some discussions as well. Because there's a really big uh, open source project. I think it's the largest open source project outside of Kotlin itself or the stuff from JetBrains, which is called Corda, which is uh, an open source blockchain framework or so to, I don't know, I'm like, I'm totally out of blockchain. I have no idea how to even call that, but it's blockchain something, something. Okay. Have I'll you heard about that, Corda? No, 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 not at all. I'm complete, I'm completely an Android dev, so I haven't really worked with that at all. Right, okay, so the blockchain is also something I, I know very little about. Um, apparently my supermarket, local supermarket, knows more about blockchain because they, they have advertising on how they're using blockchain to verify where food is coming from, which is ridiculous, but anyway. Um, <laughs> but we're not gonna talk about blockchain, although if I had a show that was called Talking Blockchain, I bet that would be successful. But um, we'll, we're gonna do Talking Kotlin. And uh, you and I were speaking offline and one of the topics that you brought up was the concept of code kindness. So can you kind of like give a brief idea of what you meant by that? So code kindness is really sort of kindness to yourself and your team. It's, it's mostly about readability and making, and it's also sort of into about, uh, about interop between Java and Kotlin, making your Java code, if you have control over it, a little bit easier to, um, to work with in Kotlin and the other way around as well, because you want to have that delicate balance between, um, you know, not messing up your Kotlin too much with annotations and things, but also making your Java, you know, really easy to work with. So code kindness would really be for me, mostly about, you know, readability and how nicely um, Kotlin supports readability. So that's actually quite a few points that uh, you've brought up and, and I think we should dive into each of them a little bit. But the first one I want to focus on is is something that uh, I don't know if you're familiar with a, with a gentleman called Kevin Henney. Have you heard of him? Mm -mm, no. So he's written a bunch of books. He's uh, on the C++ committee. Um, I think it, he, he put together, authored or something, uh, the 97 things all programmers should know or something. And it talks a lot about code uh, readability and how you stuff, how you write things. And one of the topics that he brings up is uh, that there's a difference between readability and uh, comprehension and comprehensibility. 
That mm-hmm. is a word, right? Comprehensibility. Yeah, or understanding. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, a lot of times when we are talking about this, and, and even like, for example, as you mentioned, you know, uh, in the keynote, uh, Andre was also talking about how Kotlin is readable. And Kevlin talks about that it's not so much that it's readable, but that it's comprehensible, right? In that anything is readable, but it's, it's mostly about comprehending. Uh, so would you agree with this posture? I think so, because I think readability has to do with parsing. It's, a, it's almost a step before comprehension. It's, you know, being to able, able to parse um, the lines of code and, and kind of um, process them in, in your mind before and getting it into your brain before you actually um, get to the point where you understand it. I mean, things like, um, for instance, regular expressions, I mean, it's difficult to read, so it, it tends to be difficult to understand. Whereas with Kotlin, it's it's both. It's both easy to, to read. It's nice and, you know, it, it doesn't have a lot of syntactic noise or things, constructs that, that may, you know, that are difficult to read. Um, so it makes it easier to comprehend what the actual intent of um, of the code is in the end. And again, that's a very good point. And also kind of what, uh, you know, Martin Fowler used to say or said was that, you know, I, some paraphrasing, you know, writing code that a machine can understand is anyone can do, right? That the big challenge is writing code that uh, a person can and read and understand. Yeah. But you bring up an, yet another interesting point there, which you talk about being able to parse, right? And this is something that I've been thinking of, especially after, you know, we, we talked about discussing this topic, which is, and, and let me try and see if I can express this correctly, but how much do we have to focus on the parsing and is the parsing very important? Because you say that it's, you know, it's fundamental for me to understand the code uh, in order to be able to comprehend it, like be able to read and parse the, the construct, so to speak, mm-hmm. in, a, in order to be able to comprehend it. And what I'm asking is, are we putting too much emphasis in this and how much of that is actually uh, kind of um, inherent to the language that is being used. I mean, probably a lot, but I would like to know your opinion on that. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think that, I mean, we grow up reading natural language. So we're kind of used to parsing natural language. So when we use things like infix operators um, or infix uh, um the infix modifier and so on and we kind of um construct dsls that are you know easy to parse and easy to kind of get your head around um that just makes it easier to read i know um mr venkat sabramam um i always mispronounce names i'm so sorry <laughs> i think it's sabramaniam if i'm not mistaken. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. Sorry, Mr. Vinka. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he'll be fine with it. I think like 90% of the people mispronounce his name. Yes, I have the utmost respect for him, though. He is an amazing teacher and such a gentle um, human being, just a really great person. Um, anyway, so um, he talks about fluency in languages 
and how um, I think he talks about um, the fluency being it's so concise and so um, so it doesn't have all the craft that that actually takes away you know it takes away that parsing ability that it actually reads like a natural language so i think you know the closer we can get in a way that makes sense and having that tension between um you know not making it so complex for language designers that it actually doesn't make sense and so easy to read um, for developers and, and read and write for developers um, that it would actually kind of um, be a, um, a, a really good way of making code more both readable and comprehensible. Yeah. So that now comes to specific constructs and, for example, Kotlin, right? And for instance, let's let's take let's just focus now on the standard library of Kotlin. You know, there's a lot of functions in there that are. Re relatively easy to understand. I mean, you read the name of the function and you know what it does, right? So it, it you could say that it's very aligned with the English language, so to speak, right? And so you know, if I read uh, filter a list on a on a series of conditions, then I know essentially I know what that does, right? Because I I comprehend the concept of filtering, and if you give me a, a collection and you give me a condition, I can kind of put, you know, uh, one and one and one together because there's three things there, so not two and two, but anyway, very, 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 very lame joke, but never mind. Uh, put all of those together and pretty much deduce what exactly is happening, right? And that is based on, you know, having functions that are easy to understand and easy to follow. So from that perspective, I completely agree that it's like it's important uh, to have very little uh, barriers in the language and and try and make it as simple as possible so that it's comprehensible, right? But then take the standard library again, and you have a whole bunch of other functions that a lot of people are using, such as let apply uh, run with etc. and you know, I've seen endless discussions on should I use let or should I use apply? Should I use run or should I use what? And is this because we are using non, I mean, ambiguous terms or not very well defined terms for these, you know, uh, functions that supposedly in a language that is meant to get rid of all of this additional syntax and barriers for people to actually understand what's happening i you know um to be honest i was looking at um at the, you know let's apply and so on and i use them on a regular basis um uh, especially let and apply but sometimes i think you you because you don't know use some of them like run or so on very often you actually don't know so i agree with you on filter and I agree with you that um, perhaps the standard lib library, um, uh, the, the any class um, method names were perhaps not that well named. Um, I can't really think of anything better, but um, I, there is a lot of confusion about those, those method names, definitely. And they're super useful. And it's actually sad when people 
don't understand them or don't don't use them probably. Um, but I've you know there's also a lot of documentation out there that eases it a little bit. But you actually want to to have things be so obvious uh, in a way that it um, that you don't need the documentation. Yeah, and there is the there is the line of obvious, right? And because. And this is related to, to something else that uh, I want to talk about, which is, you know, that comprehension, I guess, and readability is a little bit subjective. But focusing back on this, what is obvious? Like, yes, as most of us that are writing code, I, I would guess the majority of us have certain level of dominance of English. So anything mm -hmm. that we align with the English language it kind of feels obvious, right? Because we all know what a filter does, right? We, we pour water in a filter and it filters out the particles. So you get a collection and you, you tell it to filter out something and it's going to filter those things out. But then apply, run, map. Okay, if you're familiar with it, if you've used it, this makes your code very comprehensible. Mm -hmm. But if you haven't, then it's not so comprehensible, right? And you start to end up a little bit trying to understand or decipher what the function is doing in order to understand what exactly is going on, right? So now you have to dive into the function to figure out what that function is doing. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna say, okay, well, this is badly named. But then, you know, I've been talking a lot about functional programming. And I talk about things like, you know, um, beyond filter, you, you have flat map, you have map, you have, um, either you have option, you have try, you have all of these data types that the majority of people that haven't done functional programming may not be familiar with, and, and the keyword there being familiar. So do we do we use these constructs? I mean, is it just a question of, you know, because a lot of people come back to me and they say, this looks really cool, but if I start to use these constructs in my code, People don't understand it very well, right? They need to now understand what all of these functions do. Once they do, obviously, they get it. But where do you draw that line of, of what is obvious and what is not? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, so I was actually thinking yesterday on... Um, I did a course in 2012 on functional programming with Professor Martin Odarski. It was a, it was a Coursera course. And... I remember struggling and struggling with with um, understanding functional programming. I mean, I think there, there comes a point where we kind of evolve in a way where we um, we learn what filter and flat map and so on is, and it just becomes part of a regular programmer's vocabulary. So um, maybe you know it's it's just something that we kind of um, learn and grow the let apply um, with and so on. It's just, you know, it's, it needs to become part of the Kotlin programmer's vocabulary rather than, um, you know, having to chop and change the, the language too much. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. And but so that then goes back to the whole uh, phase of, like, then we should move away from doing things that are very much aligned with, uh, English or the natural language and move towards more uh, domain-specific languages, which you could say that functional programming is a domain-specific language for uh, functional programmers mm -hmm. in a way, right? So yeah. if I talk about, for instance, 
you know, in Kotlin, I have the concept of infix. Now, if you use the infix operator, you can very much write something that looks like English, yeah? Or yeah. if you start to do DSLs, you can start to write things that are very like common English, yeah? So mm -hmm. there's a very split, and you could even describe your domain in, in a in a language that, that would feel at times that you're just basically constructing English sentences, you know, for ignoring the, the curly braces that you have here and there. So what, what do we do? Like, you know, should someone take Kotlin and say, okay, I'm going to make this as comprehensible as possible and I'm going to try and write out everything as a DSL, right? Like, let's assume for a moment that, that we're completely ignoring uh, any potential performance issues that you may have whether at runtime or at, uh, compi at uh, compile or the, um, the writing time, authoring time or what have you. And do we go down that route or do we go down the route of saying, no, you know what, let, let developers get familiar with all of the concepts of functional programming and let's just go down the complete route of functional programming. Because at the end of the day, it comes back to, you know, who's reading it and how familiar they are with the constructs that you're using. Yeah. So I was I was actually thinking about this. And um, for me, I don't know, maybe maybe you can also jump in here. But for a DSL, um, you know, there's there's it, it's definitely a wonderful thing to have. And I mean, Anko and um you know the the gradial gradial cotton gradial DSL that came out now, and um, Anko for Android developers and so on has made made life so much easier. But do you th do you think that maybe it's it's not really supposed to be more oriented towards you know very specific things, and especially like things like libraries, um, because I mean, for instance, you can have with operator conventions or just conventions in general, um, you know, there, there's a few instances where you can use them really well um, and, you know, other conventions as well. But um, they're, they're also limited and they're also, they increase the fluency. But I think in general, you kind of have to take the language as it is and um, write fluent code and kind of rely on the fluency of the language um, to to guide that readability and comprehensibility a, a little bit. So I think it's it's not to say that we can't um, kind of contribute to the language and give great ideas on how to make things more readable. But I think Kotlin, in, as it is already, and the features that it already has, leads leads itself to readability in any case. Um, so I think it's a, a matter of taking the baseline knowledge that a normal programmer has and um, making what they can, you know, in terms of readability, comprehensibility, the best that they can in, in order to um, uh, talk about, you know, in order to, to make the intent possible. I mean, we should never forget about um, things like variable naming and naming, you know, having good names. And I mean, that's, and, you know, refactoring things into smaller classes. That's, that's the fundamentals of readability. So it's working with your language and having idiomatic code, but it's also using common sense and naming things well, and not kind of 
pushing yourself into having these long functions and long classes that nobody can remember what happened at the top of the functional class. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, there's definitely the, the aspect of designing things taking into account certain principles such as naming which believe it or not still you know you find some of the most horrendous things in in code in terms of naming right mm -hmm. so that that is key the the other aspect that you mentioned which is trying to make things smaller as possible whether you are using functions whether you're using classes whatever obviously the smaller something is it's it's easier to comprehend yeah uh and you, if you combine that with the naming, even better. So those those aspects completely agree with. And you know you can do that whether you're doing object oriented programming or you're doing functional programming, right? And at the end of the day, the unit of behavior is essentially a function. So if you name that properly, you're abstracting the the functionality with the name, so to speak, right? So you only have to understand the name in order to comprehend what what it is doing, as opposed to diving into the to the to the implementation, right? Um, but to answer your question, it is like I, I kind of feel again it goes it goes back to what I was going to ask initially, which is you know at the end of the day, readability or comprehensibility or whatever you want to call it is very much in the eye of the beholder, right? Mm -hmm. So you know what may be comprehensible to you and me may not be comprehensible to someone that just jumps on board the Kotlin um, train, right? I was going to say bandwagon. Oh my god! Anyway, on the Kotlin train, so it 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 very much depends. So like, and it goes back to the whole concept of like, should I use functional programming constructs or not? Should I use DSLs or not? Well, personally, I think that DSLs have certain places where they are very useful, and mm -hmm. it 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 goes back to uh, who is the target for the use of the DSL. So I've somewhat advocated that people could use DSLs for expressing business logic, right? Yeah. And and expressing domain concepts in a way, in a way that people that aren't too familiar with the programming language jargon could understand what is being expressed, much the same way that we used to do a little bit with, with tests, right? So mm -hmm. I think that there is a place for that. And then when people say to me, well, you know, should I go full board with functional programming? Again, it is it is the context of who your audience is. If you if you're getting, you know, if you're a team of uh, object oriented uh, developers that are very used to Java or, or C sharp or classes, etc. And don't know much of the higher concepts of functional programming. Sure. I mean, introducing that is going to be quite challenging. And it's going to probably make the code for them less comprehensible in the short term. At some point, it will become, you know, second nature. And, and it will do the same way that everyone now knows what a filter is. Tomorrow, everyone will know what uh, either uh, data class is or what have you, right? Or I don't want to say the M word, but they, they might know what a monad is as well, right? So... Mm -hmm. I think there's a natural progression, as you were saying as well, right? Which is, you know, where do we start and, and where we go is very much in in line with who it is that's doing it and, and what our objectives are. Mm. So I think what you're saying is that you have to be sensitive about, you know, where we are at, at, the, at the moment. You know, we are now mostly um, kind of comfortable with functional programming in general and 
we have to take into account that a lot of people are coming from the Java background into Kotlin. Um, I myself have been coding Java stuff since 1999. So I came from a almost pure Java background. Um, and it, you know, you have to take into account that people are coming from that background. So um, you need to, one needs to actually just be kind in that way and kind of gentle and sort of progress, you know, progress with your code, keeping that in mind that it's, it's you don't want to have Java like Kotlin, but you also want to make it easy for, um, for Java developers to pick up what you're saying. So it's, it's, it's a whole complicated mess, but I think um, it's, it's the same with when you, when you teach somebody natural language, you start with the basics. And you kind of, um, and, and then you start doing uh, sentence constructions and idioms and so on. So um, I think, I mean, when I was 14 or 16, I learned uh, African language and you start with the small words. You start constructing sentences and greetings and hellos and so on. And then you work your way towards literature and, um, and idioms and so on. Um, so it's the same with, you know, going from, I don't want to say converting, but going from um, Java to Kotlin and um, learning Kotlin for itself and kind of, um, but also being gentle in um, the way that you um, allow that person to kind of go, you know, and, and sort of take wings in Kotlin. Yeah, and everybody that starts in, in Kotlin is writing Java, right? I mean, you're essentially writing Java using Kotlin constructs. And then progressively, you start to introduce uh, Kotlin-specific idioms, right? Mm -hmm. Whether you call that uh, infix operators, whether you call it extension functions or lambdas with receivers or uh, let apply and run. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a gradual um, progressiveness from what you know to what you're trying to accomplish. So mm -hmm. what, what I guess what I was really trying to say um, which is, you know, confirming what you're saying, but also the whole concept of comprehensible is obviously in the eye of the beholders, right? It is who is looking at this and the, a, a set of, um, you know, things that you agree on, a set of principles that you agree on that everybody is familiar with a certain level of knowledge. Everyone parts with a certain uh knowledge of different uh, constructs and syntax, etc. And then that really influences very much what we could consider comprehensible or not. Right? Sure, so, yes. Yeah. So what I'm trying to figure out is like, is there anything that we could say that ob objectively is incomprehensible? Like, apart from esoteric languages, which is Again, if you're used to them, it's probably uh, comprehensible. But like, would you say that there is certain things, certain red flags that we could all agree on independently of our knowledge of a language or the idioms of that language that we could say that doing this would lead to incomprehensible code? So as, a, as opposed to trying to define what comprehensible is, is there is it easier to define what is incomprehensible and to try and stay away from this yeah so like i mentioned before with regular expressions if you're used to regular expressions and you you know eat it for breakfast 
then it's that's going to be comprehensible to you. Um, but it's so concise that it actually kind of, for most people, it actually kind of is quite a huge entry barrier. So it's more about the entry barrier um, for readability rather than the that once you've kind of get, gotten used to it. Um, so it's and again in with with Java you have this boilerplate um, nonsense that really happens and that's also difficult to you know you have to read and and kind of cope with the fact that you know a parcel you know parsable versus partialize is is um, is a thing and you it's it's really just the fact that you have to either go with it. And you know, recognize that it's it's there, or you have to um, work around it with another library. Or, I mean, that's that's pretty much it. Um, yeah. yeah, and um, I think that again, and also one other topic that we mentioned, which is you know, long methods, long classes, lot of code. These are red flags, really, no matter what language you use, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's essentially uh just the the bigger the the chunk that you need to understand the, the big the harder it's going to be uh bad naming like i think so I, I would say that it's like easier to to define key things that are incomprehensible uh because comprehension is mostly you know subjective and the to, it very much depends on the on it and on the on the person on the team on on the conventions etc so could we i mean there's there's a lot of star guides as well do you think that star guides help in in order to try and achieve uh, a common layer of comprehensible code across uh code bases and teams sure so i did a little talk on code review culture um during um, last week and um, one of the things that I, I was saying was that style guides are important to have a common way of expressing something in a language um, I mean we follow the the, the um, Google um, Android style guides and the Kotlin style guides as well and um, you know we've we've had the debate you know a couple of debates and then sometimes you just say well it doesn't say it in the style guide and using my logic, this piece of code doesn't really read any better or any worse than what you're suggesting. So let's just move on. You know, I think with code reviews also, that also helps um, propagate really good um, way or better ways of um, understanding languages. Um, for instance, I was complimenting one of my coworkers um, on the, his use of the Kotlin type alias. We had a class that was really inappropriately named. It was difficult to understand. And we just, he just used type, type alias. And I was like, well done, kudos to you. Um, I've, I haven't used that feature before, but it was a good call. Um, so in terms of coming back to style guides, I think it just has a measure of uniformity and has that measure of, um, and it, it also, you know, it's, it's probably, probably properly, um, thought out. So it, it there's also a measure of uh, rule of thumb um, and good common sense when you have curly braces at a certain point in a certain point in in your code. Um, 
So I don't know if, if that really answers your question, but I think style guides definitely help in keeping consistent code, keeping a common language and um, keeping, con you know, just uh, good working code. So how do you confront code reviews, for instance? How would you, you know, if you're reviewing a piece of code by someone and you start to enter a debate of like, well, I don't think this is readable. Well, I do think it is readable. How do you solve that? So um, for us, we have several reviewers. We have about um, four or five people sort of um, chiming in. Um, but first thing, we, we have a good style guides and best, pra best practices and so on. So um, we try not to rely on personal opinion that much. Um, and kind of, we also look at what is what is more idiomatic. I mean, one of the more common mistakes that I tend to make is not using expression blocks, but rather block bodies. Um, and you know, if something is small enough, it's definitely going to be a little bit more easy to read um, if it's an expression body, um, expression uh, body, rather than a um, a block body. Um, you you you're not showing the the return type. You're showing that this is a short statement. Um, there's no return statement, so there's all kinds of noise that's being removed. And um, yeah, in in terms of code review, what you know there is there is a lot of back and forth. But we view it as a collaboration and a learning from each other, rather than a you know a fight club about whose opinion is weighs the most. Yeah, I guess, again, it goes back to like as much as you can make objective in this, the easier it would be, right? Uh, because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much we can agree on everything. There are slight things that we would end up disagreeing with in terms of uh, yeah. what is readable for one isn't for another. Yeah. You actually uh, touched on uh, the return type of a function. And I know that Kotlin is very big on type inference and back in the day in c sharp we had this eternal debate of uh you know var or no var uh in kotlin we don't have that debate really it's just val or var uh yeah. java now is having that debate of oh should we or shouldn't we use explicit or implicit typing uh mm. of, of types i was saying the other day i said i gotta make myself a teacher uh, a t-shirt a t-shirt that says uh you know um, Implicit versus explicit. Oh, I've been there and got the T-shirt. <laughs> so, um, had that debate, got the T-shirt. But anyway, one of the things that I notice a lot of people are using is the single expression functions in Kotlin, right? So just, and, and not using impl impl explicit uh, return types on functions. Do you commonly use that in your code base and, and do you find that comprehensible? So I think you have to kind of use logic or and be kind about the way you know you use things. If if you're if it's starting to get to four, five, six lines of code um, where it's just compound statements, you have to break it up. You have to start naming things and you have to start returning, you know, that that explicit return type, you know, just bite the bullet. I think um you know, you have to to kind of use common sense. You know, it, um, it's lovely to not have that return type. Um, 
coming from Java, it's it's nice to, for instance, not type the semicolon. It's nice not to be so explicit about um, types, even though the compiler is smart enough, you know, on, in Kotlin to figure out what freaking the return type is. But um, I think for for me, you have to also use common sense. I mean, if it becomes difficult, and that's also something that comes out in code review. If if you're um, if you're kind of embarrassed about your code and you start adding comments to try and explain what your conditionals are doing, you're probably, you know, you probably even get called out in your code review. And that's why code reviews are also so precious in um, learning the language and learning about readability because not everyone is gonna have that same level as you and not everyone is going to understand what's going on in your brain. Yeah, and I think that sometimes we kind of forget that, right? We just kind of take any feature and say, oh, let me just push this and squeeze it to the extreme and see how much I get, and it looks cool, right? Luckily, you've got code reviewers to, to kind of call you out, and in open source, you know, you don't get away with anything, so. <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, we're running out of time. Uh, it's been great chatting with you. Uh, we were just speaking also... Uh, beforehand regarding KotlinConf and uh, you're joining for the next one, right? Which is in Copenhagen. Yes, very excited. I've always wanted to go to Copenhagen. Yeah, we, we, a lot of people will think, well, a lot of people, some people are like, oh, I really were expecting it to be in the US. Like, I don't know, we did, we, we did the first one in the US, second one in Europe, so, but there was a pattern that we're going to alternate. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think that we will be going to the U.S. Uh, uh, again. I don't know when, though. But this year it's going to be in Copenhagen, which is really nice. And if yeah. you do you like barbecue? Barbecue. So in South Africa, we have brine. Um, so it's, it's you know, we have sausage and um, bacon and, you know, spatchcock chicken and all kinds of things that we buy. And it's a, it's a weekly thing. So um, we definitely like barbecue. Okay. Because they've got a really good barbecue place actually in in Copenhagen, it's called War Pigs, uh, and they do like uh, Texan style barbecue from people uh, originally from Texas, and it's it's co-located in a venue with um, craft beers like uh, Mikeller and stuff. So if you're into that, you should definitely check out War Pigs because it's like amazing like some of the best barbecue I've ever had. I think that's one of the reasons I'm excited about Kotlin Conf being in Copenhagen is so that I can go to War Pigs. <laughs> so cool. Anyway, well, thanks again for coming on. Uh, it was great chatting with you. Thank you. Yeah, it was great chatting to you too. And I'll see you next time at Kotlin Conf.